I'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 25 as we continue um, our series through Matthew. Just by way of reminder, Matthew has structured uh, his account of the good news, his gospel account, using five discourses or five speeches, five sermons that give shape and direction to his account. The first sermon is known as the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins famously with the blessings, which we more commonly know as the Beatitudes. This fifth sermon that we're looking at now is known as the Sermon on the Last Days, and it begins famously with the curses more commonly the, the, known as the woes, pronounced upon the spirit of any age personified in that age by the Pharisees. Matthew's message is, has been that in the person of Jesus, the long-promised day of God on which he will pour out the rich blessings of his life-giving righteousness and shalom or peace has in fact arrived. It's made its appearance and his name is Jesus. And Matthew has been saying that in seeing and recognizing and believing and following Jesus, we are ushered into the abundance of that promised blessing. But he's also been saying, at, with different levels of clarity, most clear in our passages that we've been looking at in the last couple weeks, is that in seeing him, and yet refusing to acknowledge him as, in fact, the one who ushers in the age of God's blessings, and following him as such, we will bring upon ourselves the fullness of our sins' curses. That's the structure, and that's the direction, that's the content of Matthew's messages. And so we have been considering several parables within this sermon about how we should be faithfully waiting for the appearance of the returning king how we should be watching for the appearance of the returning king, how we should be preparing for the appearance of the returning king. And today, as we consider, continue that, we will consider how shall we then invest our time as a part of our waiting for and watching for and preparing for? How ought we to invest our time as we wait for watch for and prepare for the certain appearance of our returning king. So read with me, if you will, this well-known parable, the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 14. He has started in verse 1 saying, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Verse 14, he continues, for the kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man <clears throat> going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, 
to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of these servants came and to settle accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, also, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away." And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God to us, his people. Yes, even in 21st century Flintstone, Georgia. I know that it's a word that grates on our ears. And so we must ask for his spirit to grant us courage to hear it. So let's go to him in prayer. And so, Father, we do come at this time and this hour to this, your word, which seems strange in our ears, seems harsh in our ears, is somewhat unexpected in our ears, not least because of how our culture has tuned our ears and how we have delighted to have our ears tuned. And so recognizing that, Father, we recognize also how deeply and profoundly we need your spirit to retune us, to grant us courage and wisdom and humility, and to hear this, your word, as your children and be changed by it. So, Father, to that end, as those who bear the name of your son, Jesus, we pray that you would do exactly that. Equip us, Father, 
to see marvelous things, to hear marvelous things, and to walk in the joy of it. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. So take a brief moment and consider your answer to this question. Someone asks you, so how do you describe God? Just think for a moment, what are some of the words that would come up, come to your mind? How do you describe God? Specifically, what kind of God does your life show that you love and adore? That is to say, what kind of God do your values and your priorities, your fears and your joys show that you love and adore? For by design, this is part of what it means that we were created in the image of God and that now the image of God is horribly distorted and twisted, by design... Our lives will be like the God we worship, love, and adore. It will be like the one for whom we are waiting, watching, and preparing. So the question is this, what does your life show about the one you are waiting for, watching for, preparing for? Because wherever the eyes of our hearts are fixed, that is the direction our lives will go. That is what our lives will look like. We are designed to live like the master that we know, the Lord that we know, the God that we worship. The Westminster Confession asks this in its first question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God forever. One of the things that the confession is saying there is that man is designed to glorify something, someone. And we will glorify and enjoy some God forever. And so it raises the question, it's helpful to know, and the confession helps us here, it's helpful to know what God we are worshiping, what God we love and adore. And so the, confession, the catechism asks, what is God? The answer goes something like this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It sounds about as comprehensive as you can get. But as many of you know, I am not shy about mentioning the additions and edits I would love to see in our confession of faith. And I will make such a suggestion here. Because I love this answer. It's a good answer. It's all true. 
God is a spirit. God is infinite. God is eternal. God is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are all true, but they are abstractions. If this is the God we worship, our life and our love will be abstracted from reality. It'll be abstracted from ourselves. It'll be abstracted from our relationships. It'll be abstracted from our neighbors and strangers and enemies. It'll be abstracted from the world we live in. If this is the God we worship, then accumulating friends on Facebook, abstracted as they are from reality, should be sufficiently faithful. These things are all true, but the list is not as comprehensive as it may appear. I wish that our dear forefathers in the faith gathered in that room asking and answering these questions had consulted the Apostle John, whose answer to the question was simply, God is love. That is the glory of the triune God. It's manifest in all these wonderful ways, but that's how John answered it. You see, our forefathers in the faith who so faithfully and diligently labored on this wonderful document missed stating boldly what our parable insists on. To live and love faithfully as we wait for, watch for, and prepare for the appearance of Christ, we must know Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. The manifestation of God's glorious love. For in knowing that Christ, we will love and adore that Christ, and we will live and love like we know that Christ. You see, our lives unavoidably demonstrate and proclaim what we believe about our master, for better and for worse, as our parable indicates. We believe him to be stri- if we believe him to be strict and generous, we will serve him with enthusiasm and diligence. If we believe him to be an ogre, we will live in fear of disappointing him and being punished by him. If we believe him to be gone and irrelevant and have given up on his ever returning, we will simply do whatever is pleasing in our own eyes. We can only live well, we can only wait well, we can only watch well, we can only prepare well when we know the Master fully, completely, knowing not only that, his is the so- he, that He is sovereign in His justice and righteousness, but also abounding in steadfast love from generation to generation, delighting in the faithful work of His servants. When we know Christ, love and adore Christ, which is what the Bible means by knowing Christ, we will live well and we will love well 
and we will celebrate well. In short, we will live like we know our master. So let's look at our parable with those things said. It's, it's a fairly familiar parable. It's the parable of the talents. A very wealthy businessman um, gathers his servants together. There are three of the servants that are um, in order for the story to unfold as it needs to. And he entrusts to them varying levels of his uh, property, of his estate, the language that is used is talents. Now, I have said um, that um, this, among other portions of Scripture, is um, probably the best argument against socialism ever. Our God is not socialist. He gives each varying levels of talent according to his ability. That's why I have this little bag here. Thank you. So he has three servants, and he gave them massive amounts of money. By the way, it's very difficult to read this parable with our modern ears because talent refers to some sort of skill that we have, like I have a talent for playing the piano or I have a talent for playing basketball or something like that. That's not what's in view here. Talent is a measure of money. So most of you or many of you will have a footnote that will say a talent was roughly equivalent to 20 years' salary. Okay? So, let's just factor this out. A talent is equal, roughly equal to about 20 years' wages. So let's just think about Flintstone. In 2017, the average annual income per household in 30725 was about $59,000. So using that, a talent in Flintstone would be about $1,180,000. I would sneeze at that. And so if you ever find yourself saying, oh, I'm, I'm a man of only one talent, it means you're a very wealthy man. And so, according to this factoring, then, the first servant receives, is entrusted with $5.9 million. $5.9 million. The second servant is entrusted with $2.4 million. And the third servant is entrusted with roughly $1.2 million. Notice in the commendation, we'll look at this a little bit later, but notice in the commendation in verse... Um, in verse 21, in the master's mind, these amounts of money are trifling. You've been faithful with a little. With a little? You gave me $5.9 million. I could never dream to have that kind of money to, to invest as I see fit. $5.9 million? I'd be happy with a 1.2 million. That's more than I can ever imagine having in my, having in my lifetime. Sorry, kids. <laughs> but that's actually part of the point. Part of the point here 
is that the servants have been entrusted with gifts beyond their imagination. They could never, ever have hoped in their own lives to gather this kind of money to be used for their master. It was entrusted to them far more than they could think or imagine. The bottom line is that they all received far more than any of them could have accumulated in their own lifetime. The inordinate amount of money is to underscore the point that what they received was not their own and that what they received was just a tiny, tiny little fraction, a trifling fraction of the master's estate. But notice this, all received different amounts of money. The master knows his servants. The master says, this servant will do well with this. This servant will do well with this. This servant will do well with this. They are equipped for it. The point is this. The point is not how much do you have. Oh, I, I can't do anything. I don't have. If I had 5.9 million in, talent, in talents, then I'd be able to do something. But, you know, I don't. And the point is not how much you make, as we'll see in just a moment. The point is, will you use what has been entrusted to you for the master's glory? The first two servants, we see it. So the first servant receives his money and immediately he goes and he, in, he invests it and he makes five talents more. The second servant seems to do something similar. However he does it, he makes two talents more. And so they got a return. Notice the return in, in raw dollars was greater, but in percentages was exactly the same. But the third servant hid the money and there was no return on it. Again, the point is not the return, but the investment. Because you see, God's grace invested faithfully does not return void, but always produces life. It's just part of its irresistible design and intent that is the power of God's grace that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. Okay, so your, master, your servants have invested, and now the master comes home. Verse 19, after a long time, the master and those servants came and settled accounts with them. And to the first, he says... The words that, isn't it true that we all want to hear this? Well done, good and faithful servant. Wow. Awesome. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the blessing of a life well lived. And both, notice this, receive the same commendation. The commendation does not vary, is not proportionate based on the return on investment. 
It is rather rooted in the simple fact that given what they had, they invested it. That is the well-doneness. That is the goodness and the faithfulness of the servant. But then turn over. Verse 24. And this is where the parable turns and hits us hard. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you. I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. Basically, you're a hard man and you're a ruthless man. You have high demands, you have high expectations, you expect them to be met, and you're ruthless. You turn all circumstances to your own benefit, to your own profit, to your own glory. And so I was afraid, and I went, and I, I hid your talent in the ground. Here, here, have what is yours. I didn't lose any of it. Our instinct at this point is to say, there, there, I understand, I get it, just give me what's mine. But that's not how the master responds. Now is a time that we need to pray for the spirit to gird us in our inner being, that we may actually hear the words of the master. Because the master says something that we do not like to hear. Verse 26, his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. In verse 30, he will call him worthless. <laughs> what? I, what? How in the world could you say that? Why would you say that? What could possibly possess you to say something like that? That's not grace. That's not loving. That's not caring. That's not compassionate. I thought God's grace was like upward. Everyone gets a trophy. But listen carefully. Look carefully. What is the root of the wickedness in the text? The servant himself tells you, I knew you and so I was afraid. And in that, he reveals that he does not know the master. He didn't invest because he was afraid. I was afraid, so I hid. Does that sound like anyone else you've heard of in the Bible? That's exactly what Adam and Eve said. When they fell prey to the lie of the evil one, 
they became aware of themselves and they thought they had known God. And in their shame, they became afraid of God and they hid from God because having believed the lie, they didn't know God any longer. He is afraid because he doesn't fully know the master. Here is the, here is the uncomfortable truth about here. The servant is speaking the truth. The fact is he is a hard man. He is a, a ruthless man in the sense that he has an understanding of what he wants. He's strict. He's demanding. He expects. And he does reap where he does not sow. He is able to turn all circumstances to his own benefit and to his own glory. It is true that this master is hard and ruthless. But what does this servant not know about the, about, about the master that the other servants did know? You see, the heart of this servant's wickedness that issues in a, in a life of wickedness is a heart that does not fully know the master. It is so shaped and motivated by fear that is afraid of losing what little it has so that the master won't be upset. You see, the third servant knew only the hardness and the ruthlessness of the master, not the character of the master, not the glory of the master. He did not know the core of generously abounding love of the master. He knew the master, but he didn't trust the master. He knew the master, but he didn't trust the wisdom of the master, or the goodness of the master, or the generosity of the master. And so he was afraid of losing the little that he had been entrusted with. He refused to even minimally invest what he had. In this sense, he's like the older brother from the prodigal son story. The prodigal son, you remember, the younger one ran away and lived his life prodigally while the older son stayed in his father's house and labored diligently so that when the young son came back and was received with such with such celebration and wonder, the older, the older brother got angry. Why did he get angry? Because he didn't know the character of his father. You see, brothers and sisters, our sin blinds us not only to our sin, but also blinds us to the love of the father, which is the glory of God. You see, our sin distorts our vision of God so that we only see his raw power, his raw sovereignty, his raw holiness and justice and righteousness. This was what blinded Luther and made him so afraid. Luther describes it this way. Well, a, uh, Robert Lairdon talking about Luther describes it this way. Luther's friend and mentor, a priest named Johann von Staupitz, had tried to ease Luther's troubled and terrified conscience by encouraging him to simply love God. The problem is that the God that Luther knew was not lovable. 
Luther mocked the idea of simply loving God for his image of God and Jesus was distorted. To Luther, they were angry and righteous or what our servant in this parable might call hard and ruthless. And out of that angry righteousness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were going to to judge man. And so Luther writes this. Is it not against all natural reason that God, out of his mere whim, deserts men, hardens them, damns them, as if he delighted in sin and in such torments of the wretched for eternity, he who is said to be of such mercy and goodness? This appears iniquitous, cruel, intolerable in God, by which very many have been offended in all ages. And who would not be? I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wish I had never been created. Love God? I hated Him! And Luther gives expression to the heart of our third servant. Love the Master. Hate the Master. Terrified of the Master. At last, Luther realized the greatest of all his sins was he hated God because he did not know God. He hated that God would judge man. He hated that, God, that he could never attain to his standard. He hated that God would turn men over to demons to be dragged away to hell when they tried to hard to please him. To Luther, it seemed impossible to love God, and that left him terrified and paralyzed. Until that day, When, by the grace of the Spirit, Luther began to understand that that the righteousness of God is exercised by the abounding love of God. Then, Luther began to dance. It is this hatred of God rooted in an incomplete, twisted, distorted vision of God and of Jesus and coming to expression in fearful running and hiding that the Master calls wickedness. That's the wickedness. That's the resulting slothfulness. That's the worthlessness. The third servant knew that the master was sovereign and just and righteous. He did not know that he was loved by the master. He did not know that the point was not to secure a certain return on the master's investment, but to simply invest the little he had. And we are like that, aren't we? We're like that. Afraid to invest what little time we believe we have. To invest what little talent we believe we have. To invest invest what little treasure we believe we have. To invest what little comfort, what little convenience, what little security, what little safety, what little health we believe we have afraid that somebody might steal it, afraid that somebody might take advantage of it, afraid that somebody might compromise it, afraid that we might catch a cold. It seems reasonable, unless we really know the master. Brothers and sisters, what I'm talking about is not legalism. To speak of investing time to listen at the risk of not completing your agenda. 
to speak of investing talent to teach little ones at the risk of discovering that perhaps you don't know as much as you thought you did. To speak of investing the treasures of your home and your money and your car and your comfort for the aid and advantage of another, perhaps a neighbor or a stranger or even an enemy, at the risk of being taken advantage of. Brothers and sisters, this is not legalism. This is not being ungracious. This is the design of the master. This is how the master has designed his kingdom to operate. It is the way he works and how he designed his kingdom to function. Risk everything I have entrusted to you, time, talent, and treasure, positions, possessions, relationships, and responsibilities. Risk it all and so grow my estate. And then celebrate with me my great jubilee. That's what he's saying. Notice what he says. Verse 7, excuse me, verse 21. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then he repeats it word for word with a second service servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What he's saying is enter into the jubilee celebration that I have been preparing for us all in my absence. Risk everything I have entrusted to you and so enter into the celebration of my jubilee. What was the difference? The difference wasn't how much they were entrusted with. It wasn't how much they got, how, the, how great the return on their investment. What was the secret that the first two servants knew that the third servant did not know? The difference was that they knew the master completely, comprehensively. The first two knew, yes, that he was strict and demanding and a successful businessman, but they also knew that he was fair and generous in all his dealings. The third knew that he was strict and demanding and a successful businessman, but he did not understand that his core character, this character of love, is what calibrated all of his actions. He did not get that he was fair and generous in all of his dealings. This is what the beavers have in mind when answering Susan, who asks, is he quite safe? In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, and the beavers look at her with shock. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Brennan Manning often said this, I believe that when we die, the master will ask us one question. Did you know that I loved you? That question haunts me because the reality is that my life gives more evidence of not knowing that he loves me than that he does love me. I find myself more frequently thinking like the third servant than like the first two servants, running risk analysis for relationships and responsibilities. 
So much of our life is shaped by the fear of the third servant, fear of losing what little we think we have, fear of caring for others since they may hurt us or abandon us, fear of friendship, fear of helping, fear of giving. What if they take advantage of us? What if, what if they become a time suck? What if they become an energy suck? What if they become a love suck? I only have so much to go around, you know. What if they become a food suck? What if they, like, gobble up everything before I get to the table? Or a convenience and comfort suck? It's all just so risky. And besides that, I ran out of Germex. But brothers and sisters, here's the gospel fact that our parable wants you to hear. All life and all love that we hoard and protect will all be lost in the long run. Only the life and the love that we give away in love for our master and neighbor will last and flourish and bear any increased return on Christ's investment. It's not ours. It's the master's. It's not ours to hoard. It's the master's to give away. It's not ours to bury. It's the master's to sow abroad. This is why, brothers and sisters, we will always have the poor with us so that we may faithfully practice investing the love and life of Christ with which we've been entrusted as part of our waiting and watching and preparing for Christ's appearance. When we risk living and loving the poor, we risk living and loving the Jesus way. We risk the way we were we risk living the way we were designed to live and love. We risk living the way our world was designed to live and love and flourish. When we invest what little time and treasure and talent with which we have been entrusted, we are actually participating in the preparations of the new heavens and the new earth. This is what our parable calls the joy of the master. The abounding life of God's goodness, the joy of the master, the jubilee celebration of the master consists of risking all that has been entrusted to us in the effort to increase the master's holdings and his estate. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand our master has entrusted us with an abundance of resources. However few resources you have been trained to think you have, you have a lot more to give away than you can imagine. Because our master has been aboundingly generous with you to entrust you with an abounding amount of his resources to be given away and to be invested so that we too and others around us may enter into the jubilee celebration when he returns. And so, Father, we pray.